This episode is brought to you by Meow Wolf. Manifest unique family memories at Meow Wolf Denver. Quantum travel is the most comfortable way for Earthers of all ages to explore a playground of imagination. And why visit just once when this immersive experience reshapes every time you enter? C Street is my favorite because C Street has this vibe of like 80s dystopian. There's like slime coming down the walls and there's weird posters. And then of course, the secret club. With the annual Portal Pass, drop by Convergence Station as much as you want for less than the cost of two adult tickets. So if you plan to go twice, it's worth it. Plus, enjoy discounts, special offers, and so much more. Get the annual Portal Pass and spend quality space time with your favorite Earthers today. Learn more at MeowWolf.com. That's MeowWolf.com. Today on CityCast Denver. Remember the summer of 2020? Between the George Floyd protests and the pandemic, there were times it felt like the world was spinning out of control. But what if some of that chaos was intentionally caused by our own government? A new podcast called Alphabet Boys is revealing the story of how the FBI undermined the racial justice movement right here in Denver and the violent felon they used to get the job done. Today, my producer Paul Caroli speaks with Alphabet Boys host Trevor Aronson and one of his main sources, Zeb Hall. Today is Wednesday, February 22nd, 2023. I'm Bree Davies, and here's what Denver's talking about. Trevor Aronson and Zeb Hall, welcome to CityCast Denver. Uh, Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. All right, Trevor, I want to start with you because you reported this crazy story and produced this podcast how did you get turned on to this story? So I have reported on the FBI for about 15 years now, and, and a lot of my previous reporting had been how the FBI pursues counterterrorism investigations. And so during the summer of 2020, I remember, like everyone, being at home, watching and seeing what's happening, seeing some of the kind of jaw-dropping response from the federal government. You know, I don't know if you remember, but in Portland, for example, DHS was basically kidnapping activists off the street. And then finally, um, I heard about this case in Denver, which I really felt was critically important to our understanding of that summer because it offered the first behind the scenes look at how the FBI was not only investigating activists that summer, but then also trying to entrap them in criminal plots, just as they'd done in previous counterterrorism investigations. Right. So you you find some documentation that all revolves around this single character who may or may not be part of one of these uh, one of these operations that you're talking about. And that's where, Zeb, you meet this person, Michael Mickey Windecker, on the streets of Denver at the time you were protesting. Who was this guy? Tell me about Windecker. Um, he was this guy that, you know, was showing up for the protest. And he, I'm going to be honest now, you know, looking back, he looks like the biker do you see at like uh uh at like some hell i don't want to say white supremacist place but just like some biker just like yo you shouldn't be around here you know he's driving a silver hearse which i look back on now it's like it's a whole silver hearse it's like sticking out like a sore thumb i think one of the things that mickey windecker the fbi informant and the fbi did that was clever was you know when you look at pictures of windecker as zed describes he looks like a biker he's got tattoos all over his body he was much older than most of these activists he kind of looked like a parody of what you'd expect an fbi informant to 
be in this situation. So by being that kind of parody, I think it disarms some activists that said like, no, the FBI would never send someone like that to be the informant. So Trevor, your podcast, Alphabet Boys, tells the story of Windecker, how he wasn't exactly who he said he was uh, when Zeb met him. What can you tell us about Windecker, where he came from and how how he, he came to Denver? Mickey, and it's important to make this clear, that the FBI knew all this when they hired him on as an informant was that he had a violent history and a, and a long, long history of deception. So, you know, his criminal record goes back. He's had arrests in Colorado, Nevada, Florida, and Texas. Um, his charges and convictions include sexual assault when he was 20. He had a sexual relationship with a 14-year-old, though he claimed he didn't know the girl was underage. Um, he spent two years in a Colorado prison for felony menacing with a weapon, where he stuck a gun in a woman's face and then said he was a police officer looking for a suspect. Ultimately serves two years for that. While in prison, he's approached for essentially a murder for hire. Uh, Another inmate asked him to murder someone. Instead of committing that crime, he then becomes a cooperating witness. And so that's the earliest record that we have of him working as an informant. And then in the summer of 2020, Mickey, seeming to know that you can make a lot of money providing information to police, sees the demonstrations happen and goes to the FBI and says, hey, I know about these protesters. I can get inside. I can get information. And so the FBI then hires him on as an informant. But I think what's critical to understand is that Mickey did not report any information that suggested a violent plot was happening, that suggested a crime was happening. What he said was that people like Zeb were at these protests and they were saying incendiary things. They were, they were saying things that were quite heated. Obviously, that's protected by First Amendment uh, speech rights. And yet the FBI, against its own stated policy, then opened this investigation in Denver using Mickey as the informant. So Zeb, tell me about tell me about what that felt like for you at the time. You're you're talking to this guy Windecker. You're you know you're planning things with him. You're meeting up with him. What are those conversations like? What are you talking about? How did you feel? You know, looking back, I feel pretty sometimes stupider. You know, I don't know what words I can say, but bad. Um, but at the time, you know, I just thought like you know, just talking to this guy. I didn't really like. Wasn't hanging out with him, having coffee with him in the morning or anything like that. You know, we weren't holding hands going down the street. But when we would meet, you know, we'd talk about events that were happening. And, you know, and yeah, some conversations became like, yeah, I'm mad on the blow this up. And yeah, you know, everybody says stuff when they're angry. So it's just crazy how, you know, you could just say something. And even if you don't partake in it at all, and you have no plans of doing anything. It's just going to be used against you. You know, he would uh, say he would tell people he would actually give people orders. You know, be over there, uh, do this. Uh, he'd hype the crowd up and, you know, things like, I can't hear you. Uh, you're not loud enough. You know, we've got to, and he would say, we've got to burn this down as well. He'd say all these things, you know, but it's odd that I can say those things, say things and not want to partake in them, but he's instructing the crowd to do these things. And as you find, people will find out later on in the podcast that he's trying to get people to do more things as well. I want to give listeners a little bit better understanding of how these conversations actually work uh, within one of these operations. So we have a short recording that we're going to play from Alphabet Boys. Um, And Trevor, I wonder if you could set this up a little bit. This is a a very memorable scene from Famous Dave's where where Zeb and another activist were were sitting across from Windecker. Trevor, what, what do listeners need to know before they hear this clip? 
So this is a meeting that Zeb attended with, with another activist named Bryce Shelby. And Mickey invited both Zeb and Bryce to lunch at Famous Dave's for a very specific reason. Mickey was looking to sew together a kind of conspiracy involving more than one activist in Denver. And so his hope was that he could get Zeb and Bryce to come together in a plot. And his ultimate goal was to try to sew together a plot where Bryce and Zeb would attempt an assassination against the, the Attorney General of, of Colorado, Phil Weiser. And so this conversation is Mickey's attempt to try to goad them into being interested in this kind of plot. Let me just be real with you for a second. At the end of the day, it's cool. Whatever your game plan is, I mean, I'm not going to sit there and tell you, you should do this and you should do that. I'm not going to say that, okay? But you need to have an objective of what you're going to do. I mean, you know, like, if Bryce is planning on, like, okay, I want to blow up a motherfucking courthouse, I need to know what the game plan is. I'm going to shoot up a motherfucking attorney general so I can tell my dude, this is what's up. Because if I tell my dude, like, yeah, they're going to come out and hang out for nine months and they want to do some training. I don't think we got that much time. Huh? I don't think we got that much time. No. I can make it happen the other way. Y'all can just make it happen. Yeah, it's whatever you want to do. I mean, it's your it's your ballpark. But I just need I just need specifics so I can tell my dude what the game plan is. All right. Zeb, you were there. What was that like? Yeah, it was uh, as soon as he mentions that, you know, I'm going to deflect and say, hey, you know, I, no, let's work on like something like six months down the line. Let's go through the winter and everything, because when you ask me to kill an elected official, I'm like, so you're, it's not something you're asked every day. You know, you don't go to the coffee shop. Hey, man, can you go kill Phil Weiser? You don't get that often, <laughs> you know, so it was just out of nowhere. So my thing is, yeah, I'm just going to deflect. But the fact that he was just so blatant to ask it in that manner as well, there was really no code talk or anything. I'm like. It was it was weird. And at that point, I was like, hey, no matter what I do, this dangerous person knows who I am. He knows uh, people I love and care about. He knows people at the protest that I don't even know. It appeared to me that they were going to go through with it, but I didn't want anything to do with it. It, it was a it was it was scary. And, you know, I left the place, you know, like, what the hell? And yeah, I I. I look back now, you know, I wish I could have said I would have gone to the police. But then again, you know, he was working with the police. So it's it, it's a it's kind of like a die or die situation. I think what's important to add to, to what Zeb just said as well. And I think the reason that this case is important is not just that what happened in Denver had what had problems. Right. But the, the the larger issue of what is shown in the Denver case is that is that in many ways, the FBI returned to some of the darkest days of its history, right? If you go back to the 1960s under COINTELPRO and J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI took informants and went into black political organizations, not to necessarily investigate crime, but to undermine them. And a, a big way that they did that was by sowing confusion and sowing distrust. And they did that by having informants claim that the leaders and, and real activists of these movements were actually informants. And that created a, a distrust that ultimately undermined a number of these black political movements in the 1960s. And what we saw in Denver was exactly that happen. Mickey was not only encouraging people to commit violence, was not only hyping up events that turned violent, but he was at the same time accusing real leaders in the movement and real activists of being informants, such that 
when you talk to activists in Denver now, they talk about how there was this general feeling of mistrust by the end of that summer that everyone was accusing everyone else of being an informant. And a lot of that mistrust was sown by Mickey in a, a practice known as snitch jacketing that goes back to the 1960s, this idea that you could undermine the movement by accusing others of being informants. I understand the FBI hasn't uh, said anything about this, hasn't explained their reasoning for doing something like this. But Trevor, you've reported on this kind of operation for a long time. What do you think they would say? How would they defend or explain this kind of thing? So what the FBI would say in the context of these types of sting operations and what I've had FBI agents explain to me in the context of these sting operations that are deployed for counterterrorism practices is that what they're looking to do is find people who are on the line, on that line dividing sympathizer with operator, that they're sympathetic to some sort of violent cause and they're not crossing that line. They want to find them just as they're about to cross that line into operator where they would do something violent. And and what they do then is they take an undercover informant or an agent and then provide the opportunity for someone to cross that line, provide them with the means, the opportunity, the bomb to cross that line to commit the violence. And what the FBI says is that the reason we do this is so we can get there first to prevent someone else acting in the way we would, in the capacity we would, to provide that bomb. That is their defense. And so what they would say in this case is that Mickey Windecker, as an informant, was making violent plots possible only as a deterrent to find people who would commit these violent plots if someone else offered them that opportunity. And that's really the whole idea of this kind of strategy. The other part of it, and I think where it kind of creates complications given the history of COINTELPRO, is that sting operations are meant to provide in the counterterrorism uh, capacity a kind of deterrent effect. The idea of like the broken windows policy of law enforcement, that the idea is that if you know that the law enforcement runs sting operations, you may be unwilling to work with someone who is interested in some sort of violence because you might think, oh, well, maybe they're an undercover informant or an undercover agent. And so it creates what the FBI terms a hostile environment for terrorism or, or for violent plots. The problem is that when you apply that practice to a political movement, that corrosive effect of trying to get people not to to work with one another has another function, which is that it undermines political activity and organizing. And I think that's where we run into this real problem that the FBI had in deploying this tactic in the summer of 2020. Basically, it created a perfect storm where the summer of 2020 and the racial justice movement and these demonstrations, coupled with the FBI's powers from the post 9-11 era, created a situation where the FBI duplicated a lot of the the bad practices and acting that it had during the, the 1960s. So Zeb, I know you were really involved in the protests. You were active. You were out on the streets making speeches, calling for change. How does this revelation about Windecker change the way you remember the summer of 2020? Well, the way I remember it now, looking back, I kind of think of it as a with him involved and now thinking about the entire national uh, view of things. I, you know, back then you would think of us the, uh, the BLM 2020 uh, summer protest. Now I just think of it as the summer of uh, anti-blackness, <laughs> you know, where they could send a criminal monster down to destroy a movement in Denver in which the federal government, you know, even beat up its own beautiful white children who came out to like help us out. It's a, uh, it's uh there's part of the uh, the metro that I go through that I just kind of like, you know, I have like little flashbacks, you know, and um have bad dreams sometimes, 
you know, I, I I try to avoid stuff about 2020, but that's something that's never going to really go away. Hmm. Trevor, how about you? Similar question. How do you hope your reporting changes the way Denver tells the story of the summer of 2020? So I think what's important about what's revealed in, in, at Alphabet Boys is that, you know, in the summer of 2020, I think it was it's important to remember that there was a, a pervasive narrative that was being pushed by the Trump administration at the time, was being echoed by right-wing media, that we should be afraid of these demonstrators. The government was actively trying to justify that claim by making people and these demonstrators more violent. And I think that's an incredibly important takeaway from all of this, that that basically the government was getting involved in demonstrations, using an agent provocateur, and turning those protests violent. And it's also important, important to understand that, you know, I think the city of Denver and the county of Denver was forced to pay $14 million in lawsuits against uh, that were filed against demonstrators who were injured. 70 police officers were injured in the week of violence that was the last week of August. That was the week that Mickey Windecker, as an FBI informant, was very, very active in encouraging the violent events. And so I think the question for Denver is a question for the FBI, which is what role did the FBI play in encouraging these protests that turned violent, that caused injuries and ultimately cost payers millions of dollars that summer? And, And I think what we can say definitively based on internal records, undercover recordings, is that Mickey played a role. Um, how big of a role did he play? Were there other informants? I think those are the un- unanswered questions that the FBI really needs to answer. Well, we are going to put a link to listen to all of Alphabet Boys and subscribe in the show notes to this episode. Trevor Aronson and Zeb Hall, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having us. And here's what else Denverites are talking about. The Welton Street Cafe is reopening. After issues with their old building and landlord forced the Five Points staple to temporarily close, the Dickerson family is going to be serving up their famous soul food on Welton Street again soon. Like, really soon. Nine News reports that they plan to open their new location at 2883 Welton Street in June. And finally... I need your help with something. We're putting together a list of the essential rules for surviving Denver, and we can't do it without you. I'm talking about the basics, like avoiding I-70 ski traffic on Saturday mornings in the winter, but also the unique things that only you know about in your neighborhood, like how to avoid street sweeping tickets. We'll be brainstorming and bringing our own ideas too, but we want to hear from you. Call the Surviving Denver hotline at 720-500-5418 and leave us a message with your name and neighborhood, and you might hear it on the show. That number again is 720-500-5418. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed the show, why not take a minute to tell Mickey Wendecker about us? Rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our morning newsletter, Hey Denver, by texting Denver to 66866. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. See ya. If you live in Baker, you're lucky because there's that person that puts the signs up outside their house that says, don't forget. (laughs) Yeah, there's somebody that does it on one of the blocks. It's really cute.